Welcome to Reinventing Nerds. Dr. Joni Cannell shares communication strategies for technical people. She shares her own stories of learning to communicate and brings in other nerds and experts to show you how to interact with people in a way that's comfortable for you. And now, here's your host, the uniquely qualified engineer turned psychologist, Dr. Joni Cannell. Hi, and welcome to Reinventing Nerds. Today we have Nihar Bhakta, and I want to tell you a little bit about what he does. He is a project team lead at Gossamer Bio. Nihar has uh, started out as a kidney transplant physician, that's his training, and he's also been in biotech and pharmaceuticals for about 14 years now. He has lots of interesting stories to share with us today. So let's jump right in and say, hi, Nihar, how are you? Good, how are you doing, Joni? I'm great. I'm so glad to have you on our show today. And um, I'd like to start out just by hearing a little bit about your job and what you do. Tell us what you do. Sure. So uh, my role is I'm the project team lead here um, for uh, one of our assets at Gossamer Bio. We have um, four assets uh, uh, that are in the clinic or close to being in the clinic. And uh, a lot of my responsibilities really revolve around ensuring that all of the various items that we need to get done um, on our project teams uh, get accomplished, really. So it's really enabling and helping the team to get through decisions, key pain points, et cetera, and also making sure that the team collaborates. Um, one of the things that's vital to any team, as you and I have discussed in the past, is that you know ensuring that we have good lines of communication where there are challenges or issues um, uh, are resolved. And so I think that one of the things that we really spend a lot of time focusing on as project team leads is really ensuring what needs to get done, what's the important work that the team should be focused on, how can we work best together. And a lot of that has very little to do with uh, my training as a uh, physician or in terms of what we do in terms of um, uh, in terms of what we do from a, a broader perspective in drug development, it really is around how our teams function and collaborate together. So it's wow. it's interesting in that you know things um, uh, how you get the work done is just as important as the work that you're getting done. Well, that's uh, well, I couldn't have asked for a better sell for this show. <laughs> so tell us what does that mean? I mean, in engineering, uh, that's also the case, but uh, in uh, pharmaceuticals and biotech, how is that that you didn't have this training for what you're doing? Yeah, so, you know, I, I think one of the things is, is that, you know, we're trained as, as scientists and the data really drives so much of what we do and experiments, how you conduct the experiments, it's really important. And, um, you know, we all are trained in terms of making sure we're designing the right experiments, and the best experiments. But what we don't realize is that you know, we have a lot of different people who have different thoughts about how to design the best experiments because no one knows everything. And I think that that's really the important part is trying to get people to collaborate and think through how can we design the best experiment, not how can I design the best experiment? Because I think that that's the one area that, you know, every scientist has a blind spot in that, you know, uh, individual people can drive, you know, great successes. But if you ask almost any, you know, great scientist, there's always a team of people who they've worked with. There's always people who collaborated with them or there's other people who they base their work on. And so we recognize, you know, most scientists, when they get to a certain point, recognize that we all collaborate in some capacity. And I think that that's the really important part of, you know, uh, what we at biotech do is really understanding how to collaborate so that we can do the right kind of science. 
Okay, so collaboration is huge. I mean, I'm thinking about in schools now, sometimes they do collaborative work, but a lot of it is still individual-based. Um, so how did you learn these skills and how to collaborate? Uh, so mo most of it was trial and error. I'd say mm -hmm. that a lot of, a lot of um, you know, the skills that we have, you're, you're absolutely right. Most of it is, you know, being an individual contributor or, or learning how to design things or getting the right answer designing the experiment right getting the best yield in chemistry all of those things that you know we um learn you know getting the answers right on every test knowing the biology mm -hmm. learning about the different diseases or the pharmacology and side effects it's all stuff that you have to do individually and that's how you get your technical expertise right but right. ultimately when you get to uh you know what we do in biotech and and in drug development you know you have to apply the science of what you've learned, whether it's on a specific pathway, whether it's about you know how your drug is absorbed, whether it's about um, how um, you know different how you might manage different side effects that your molecule might have. All of those things are things that are really applications of what you've learned to date. And I think that you know the application of that work um, a lot of times is driven individually, but really sometimes it's interpretation of what that data what comes out of that those results and the interpretation can be a very collaborative effort and i think that that's the one thing that for us uh in you know at my company in particular but really on almost every good team that i've worked on it really ends up being a collaborative effort there's rarely one person who takes all of the responsibility for any success or identification or anything like that usually it's a team of people who've worked on things and so you know i think that the one area that within um biotech and, and pharma that's that's really important is that we uh, recognize how best to identify you know um, those issues and talk about them and collaborate on them yeah that's so interesting because I mean some of what I was fixated on while you were talking here was about how you need to learn that expertise so in some ways yeah. you know you do need to focus on the individual part going forward but then at some point you have to be able to work on the collaboration as well. And, and that's, yeah, the trial and error working on teams and, and doing it uh, in the workplace on, on the kind of projects that you're on, right? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think, um, you know, I think the expertise that people bring um, is all developed, a lot of it's developed in uh, isolation. You know, people, yeah. chemists working on, mm -hmm. you know, getting better yields or chemists working on identifying mm -hmm. a simpler process um, or our biologists working on, you know, different animal experiments. Uh, but uh, what we end up, you know, ultimately getting to is that those people all need to get into a room and talk and figure out how we can right. move, uh, move, move that molecule or move that drug forward so that we can ultimately get to the patients. Right. So uh, the other thing I, I really picked up on was the interpretation piece. And you're not just talking about this teamwork, but you're talking about uh, an intellectual piece of this, how to collaborate on interpreting the science. That's something that I haven't heard a lot about. Yeah, um, so, you know, I, I think that that's something that I've learned over uh, really more recently in the last like four or five years um, as uh, I've worked on different um, projects that have ultimately tried to get drug approval, you know, get, get a new medicine approved. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the things that really comes out of that is that uh, you know, when data 
when there's data and a lot of times there's, you know, mm -hmm. data is complicated. It's ne it never gives you a black and white answer. A lot of right. times it's gray. You know, one piece of data leads you down one path and another piece of data from the same data set might lead you down a very different path. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of times for one person to think through all that can be overwhelming, really daunting mm -hmm. and make it so that you don't really feel like you can actually, you know, get, think through it and figure out what the right answer is. And the one thing that I found is that a lot of times when you get the smart people in a room together talking about what, what do we think the key pieces of data mean, you can really come to kind of an aligned interpretation about why, you know, the data means what it means and really feel that you're comfortable with that. And, right. you know, everyone can get on the same page. So, so you're right. It is, um, it is different than, you know, uh, than a lot of times what we're taught to do, which is you're supposed to interpret the data yourself and come to your own conclusion. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's so fascinating. I mean, because I often talk about people skills just in terms of how you interact with others and lead teams and all that. But you brought up another layer of this, of just the uh, the collaboration and the intellectual piece of the science. But um, I'd like to also talk about the whole people side of it. You know, you've been sure. leading a team now. How long have you been managing a team? Yeah, so in terms of, um, you know, I, I, this current company, I've been here for about a little over a year. Uh, prior to that, I was at another company uh, where I was also leading uh, a team um, uh, through through a filing. And uh, that was for about two and a half years. And okay. uh, really, you know, some of those skills that I said that I've learned, you know, have been through those experiences. Some of them really I learned actually a long time ago, and I just didn't realize that those are skills that I, I probably learned a long time ago. Yeah. That I, now that I reflect on it, you know, part of it is age, obviously, as you more experience you get, the more mm -hmm. you realize that there are certain times in your life where you, maybe you should have handled things differently, or maybe you weren't in the right space to understand the lesson that you learned that at that time. Interesting. Do you have any examples of such learnings? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think one of the examples, and I was talking about with, uh, about this with my wife, who's also a physician, is that during training, um, you know, when we're residents and, you know, in our fellowship programs, um, a, a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of education that goes on. And a lot of times there's, um, you know, people who you need to mentor and, and help help them to, um, you know, improve how, the, how they are practicing physicians. And that's really the role of a senior resident or an attending physician um, uh, for the interns. And, you know, one of the things that, um, and I, I'm not proud of this by any uh, stretch of the imagination is uh, one of the things that um, you know my wife reminded me of is that I had a proclivity for making interns cry um, in, in residency and it wasn't because I was yelling at people even though there are some residents who have that um, capacity I, it was because I would be talking to them about you know science or trying to educate them on what they might have done which wasn't appropriate for the patient and uh, that really led to some very difficult interactions. One example in particular, I remember I was working um, in a, uh, uh, a cardiac uh, unit uh, taking care of very small children uh, postoperatively, and there was a patient who had uh, a low sodium. Now, a lot of the electrolytes that are in your body, you, you know, you see even those Gatorade commercials where they tell you you need right. to replenish your electrolytes, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so a lot of times, depending on what the electrolyte is, you can just add a little bit more of that electrolyte to the uh, intravenous fluids that the patients are getting because they're really not eating uh, immediately postoperatively. Um, 
And it, it's pretty common that you do that. You modulate those up and down. Sodium is a little bit different, though. The biology and the physiology of sodium mm -hmm. is such that you really, it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. You need to understand why the sodium might be low. Um, and, you know, you need to think about, you know, in, in, in the setting that the patient is in, this is a post-operative setting, they've probably gotten a lot of IV fluids. Um, it actually might be because the sodium is slightly diluted in terms of it's usually a, a problem of water, having too much fluid on board. Okay. And so you need to think, you know, you need to think that through, but you always need to think it through in the context of the patient that you have and all of the information and the data that you have. So this intern came to me and said, oh, this patient's sodium was low. I increased the sodium in her IV fluids. And I said to the dental person, that doesn't sound like a good plan because, you know, did, did you know, and I asked her for a few other pieces of data, which she didn't have, uh, specifically around, you know, what did the urine look like, you know, and, and a couple of other pieces. And, um, uh, you know, when she asked me, you know, well, what's wrong with what I did? And I tried to explain to her that, you know, that can actually be somewhat sometimes a dangerous proposition um, to increase the sodium mm -hmm. in someone's IV fluids, um, because it can um, lead to some other side effects. And now nothing had happened with this patient. And actually, you know, she had written an order that hadn't even been taken off and promptly walked over, crossed the order out, mm -hmm. you know, and, and decided to, to manage things a little bit differently for that patient. Uh, but the intern, um, you know, she, she was a very good intern and she really was very conscientious and thoughtful, but also she was kind of exhausted because she was working crazy hours. And mm -hmm. she, you know, as I think every physician has at some point, you know, kind of started crying. I mean, I know I've done it myself and it happens. And um, it's interesting because I look back on that interaction now and I realized, you know, I probably should have handled that differently because I should have recognized who that, you know, what position that intern was in, that she was, here she was exhausted. Mm -hmm. she, I think she was post-call even where she'd been up for you know, at least 24 to 30 hours. And um, even just my go walking her through something in a very scientific way, which I thought was perfectly reasonable. Um, if I look back on it now, I think maybe I should have handled that differently. I should have thought, been, been a little bit more thoughtful about who I was talking to and what, what you know, um, uh, what mind state she was in before I started saying these very, what I thought were very scientific words that ultimately, right. you know, ended up uh, causing her to, to not feel, um, to not be in a very good place. And so, I, you know, things like that, I think are very common for physicians and scientists. They don't think about the fact that when they're talking about data, sometimes data, you know, you need to realize who you're talking to that data, what mindset they're in, and, and, how, and how willing they are to receive what you're talking to them about. I'm sure if we had that discussion at a different time, she wouldn't have interpreted it in the same way. But, you know, that's something that I've learned through the years, and I've, I'm now really cognizant of that now, uh, almost 20 years later, because I realized that anytime I'm having a discussion with someone, even if it's around data, I need to first you know, get a feel for who I'm talking to. You know, that's really a good example there, because when I mean, you talked about a data, just, I mean, so many people think about data as just being, it, it's logical, it's rational, it speaks for itself. Why would we have to worry about how we present it, you know, and, um, uh, that's the way to prove a point, but uh, you're saying uh, it's actually where someone's coming from, what state they're in, and how they feel about the data, how they feel about 
um, the way it's being interpreted or whatever, or the way it's being conveyed or, or communicated. There's so many different things there. And it's, it's not even just their feelings, but it's also, you're talking about somebody who's been uh, working long hours, they're exhausted and, um, and, and really understanding the people side of it. You're not just sort of crunching numbers in a computer, you're talking to a human being. Uh, and that comes up in so many different ways, not even just in a hospital. I'm sure it's also if you're working at the, the biotech company, people are working long hours Absolutely. on something and, and the data comes back and you're just explaining it and you don't really think about where they're at. You could certainly make someone cry there too, I'm, I'm guessing. You yeah, don't want to it, anymore. <laughs> yeah. No, no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right, Joni. You know, yeah. it, it is funny. I mean, um, that's the one thing that I, I re realize is that, um, you know, people really want to do their best. You know, everyone yeah. comes at it from just, you know, really good intentions. And, you know, you have to take that mindset with the people on your team that people aren't intentionally being difficult or aren't intentionally, mm -hmm. you know, um, not being collaborative. They're, they're coming at it from the best you know, uh, best of intentions. And so, you know, the way that you have to realize that what you, you have to, when you're talking with folks, talking through data, um, understanding, you know, trying to come to a mutual understanding around data. I think that, you know, understanding the mindset of where they're at is absolutely important. You know, if it's someone who's been killing themselves, crunching through numbers, working till, you know, all hours of the night trying to get things done and, you are trying to talk to them about why they need to do more to understand the data. You need to understand that. You need to be really, yeah. you know, cognizant of that because sometimes, you know, that gets interpreted as you're asking me to do more work and have already done so much more work already, right? Even though what you're trying to say is that we need to come to, you know, we need, we need a little bit more clarity around what the data you've already showed us has yes. given us, right? Like, like you're, you, you've walked us down a really good path already. Or we need to, you know, close it. We need to go those last 10 meters or 20 meters or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And we need your help to do that. And you need to understand that sometimes that can be really hard for people to take. And I've been the one who's received that news, you know, and it's been hard for me to take where I've already done a ton of work on a filing, you know, worked on multiple, closing out multiple studies. And then, you know, there's additional work that's being asked. There's additional analyses that need to be thought of or additional, you know, um, documents that need to be written. And it can be, overwhelming at times and right. you know having done the work and now also you know leading people who are doing the work i'm always cognizant of that because you know it isn't that people don't want to do good science it's that people really need to understand um why you're asking them to do the work or why right. you think that you need to get more data so do you have a way of encouraging people or celebrating success to a certain point or is it just really there's no time for that. You just have to keep plugging and, and helping them understand uh, that uh, they need to be in there for the long haul. Oh, no. We, so that's, that, that, that's one, of, one of the reasons I really enjoy the company that I work at now is that that's actually part of our ethos. I mean, we celebrate their successes along the way, you know, and we know that we don't always achieve, um, you know, uh, get to celebrate lots of big milestones all the time. But when we, when we hit them, you know, we want to make sure that we celebrate them and we, and even the smaller milestones. So the first patient who gets enrolled in a trial, it's just the first patient. There may be hundreds right. of more coming after. Yeah. We celebrate those milestones because those are really important. There's so much work that it takes getting a patient, you know, uh, enrolled into a trial or the first mm -hmm. time, you know, the first, I, I still remember this was a year ago, actually, um, you know, where we had commissions just some um, uh, on one of my other projects here, here at Gossamer. 
we had commissioned a little bit of work to better understand the biology of how our drug works and how it's metabolized. And that when we've got the very first data from that experiment, like it was super exciting. And it was one of those things that just within a team meeting, I you know just wanted to recognize all of the team members who put so much effort into getting that one experiment conducted and done, you know, it took them about two months to get all of the data from that experiment. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those things where it's like, we conceived this experiment here in a room two months ago as a team, we're a new company. And now we have data that we've generated as Gossamer Bio. It was really, it was really exciting and fun. And so we have to do that along the way, because if you don't, it's so easy to lose sight of just, you know, keep working harder, keep doing more, you know, and then ultimately burn people out. And then, you know, no matter how great people are, you know, it, it, it's never fun to come to work if you don't feel like you're appreciated. It just isn't. Right. Yeah, the burnout factor is huge. So uh, what else do you do to help uh, mitigate that? You know, so I think one of the things that um, we try to do is always to make sure, especially in my role, is to make sure people have enough resources. Sometimes the resources are monetary. Sometimes it's just allowing them to you know, have the funding to get their projects done, right? Mm -hmm. So that they can, you know, go out to a vendor and get it done. Other times it's human resources. You know, maybe Mm -hmm. it's finding a consultant to help pitch in for a couple of months. Uh, Maybe it's finding someone who can help crunch through some numbers with them. You know, maybe it's finding someone, a statistician who can help or a programmer who can help um, to uh, help support things. And all of those things are are really important because, you know, ultimately those are the types of things that help people avoid Right. Mm-hmm. That they know because th- they'll also be more willing to raise their hand. I know I'm the one who raises my hand sometimes to my management because, you know, there's just too much to do and we're asking too much of the team. And, you know, that I, I think that that's, you know, that's important because we you never want to burn people out. And you but you also want to get things done quickly. Right. And it, it's mm-hmm. my line. You're constantly walking. It's that, you know, there's always for us, at least there's always a patient waiting. Right the faster we get things done, but we have to do it the right way. We have to design the right experiment. The faster we get it done, the sooner that that, you know, new medicine that we're working on might become available for patients who are in need. And so, you know, we want to do things as fast as we can, but we recognize that if we lose people along the way, um, that we're actually not doing it as fast as we can. Right, it'll take longer. It'll take us longer because we got to get bring mm-hmm. someone in new, get them up to speed. Right. And so we're, we're constantly balancing that and we don't want to lose people. We don't want to have attrition. So, you know, it, it is, it, it's hard. I don't think that there's a good answer. Unfortunately, I think within, within our field, it's this constant, a constant tension. And we have to, as, as leaders within our organization, but also within any individual sub team or project team, we have to recognize that there's a fine balance between burning people out and, and driving people to, toward getting things done. And I think the way that, you know, the way that I found has is authentic, at least for me, is that I always try to help. So what can we do to help? You, if you ask those words, most people will tell you that they need help, or they will um, they will at least know that there's someone who can help me should I need help down the road. And I think wow. that that's really yeah. important. As a manager, what can I do to help? I mean, that's those are just like, what, how many words? What can I do to help? You know, like five, six yeah. words, you know? I mean, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. And, and people don't want to hear that, right? People, uh, I mean, it, it's funny because a lot of times people think, oh, am I doing something wrong? And that's really okay. the wrong, wrong culture. You know, in some, in some um, corporate organizations, when a manager says that, it gets interpreted as I'm not doing my job. Okay. Right? So how do you, so, 
So, so you have to build that from the beginning. You mm -hmm. have to build it from the beginning when, when we ask the question, what can I do to help or how can we, how can we better support you? We're being honest. You know, you just have to let you, it, it can't just be said once. It has to, you know, it's part of the constant, you know, when you come into work, it has to be honesty and transparency and humility, really. And when you do those things, people believe you then, you know, and if, and if you're, right believes you if they believe that you're going to follow through on what you say you're going to do that if you said you're going to get them more resource you go and get them more resource or you know you, you if once you build that trust that that's how you can you know keep people from getting burned out because you realize that and they realize that oh we're in this together we know that we have to get these things done together and that, that you know that there will be support when i need support how did you come to these conclusions? I mean, I want to know about when you transitioned from uh, individual contributor to a team leader. Um, how did you know what to do? And, and how did that go for you? Like maybe what are some things that you had to um, think about or uh, that were struggle with at first uh, that you overcame to get to where you're at now? Sure. So I, I think the one thing that um, I guess I'll, I'll start with, the easiest, e easiest thing for me, at least, mm -hmm. is what were the things that I didn't like, you know, when a manager told me to do something and just start with okay. that, right? What are the things that kind of were my trigger points? And obviously trying not to <laughs> bring those out when I have to lead a team. So, uh -huh. you know, and the things that always got me set off were, you know, people who, um, you know, would micromanage me or people who would you know, um, ask me to do work and then never use it, like th those kinds of things, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that, that, that's the basis of where I started. But honestly, a lot of it was trial and error. I mean, you know, I, it, you hate to say it, but it is, it is the truest known scientific method, right? Which is, um, you know, uh, you, you have to realize that, you know, over time, I've realized that I there's no one approach that works with everyone and on every team. You mm -hmm. have to realize who's on your team, what do they respond to? Some people really respond to, you know, being very data driven and everything is you need to show the metrics. You know, other people very much want to just be heard, that they just need 10 or 15 minutes of, you know, time with whomever the leader is to let them know what their concerns and their complaints are, that they've been heard um, and that they might be addressed moving forward. So it really does depend on, on, on you know, the team that I'm working on. And I've, you know, fortunately in, in you know, biotech and pharma, but I'm assuming this is true within a lot of scientific fields. Oh, yeah. That, is that, you know, you work with a variety of personalities and having some degree of, you know, for lack of a better word, I guess, emotional intelligence about, you know, who mm -hmm. you're talking to, who's on your team. I think that's probably the most important thing. Really try to learn about those people. Try to learn what drives them. And then that, that can help, help you figure out how to, how to get your team into the right place. Wow. Yeah, uh, that's just huge. It, it sounds to me like um, you've put a bit of uh, time and effort into figuring that out. But it also sounds like the trial and error method, you have to be willing to take risks and make mistakes. And uh, how do you get through that? I mean, one of the things I hear a lot from uh, new leaders is this idea that, that they won't be seen as a good leader if they make those kind of mistakes. So how do you push through that? you know that's that's that, that's a great point and that's something that you know you constantly struggle with how do you reset if you all get off to a bad foot right in, in on a new project or a new team you know if you do make some of those mistakes and i think that the way that you can reset is by 
really being humble, honestly, is like recognizing and, and owning your mistakes and saying, you know, I made a mistake here. Telling your team, hey, I screwed up. You know, wow. I, at least for me, yeah. that's very, yeah. it, it's, and it's hard for people to, to own that, right? Because we're all mm -hmm. supposed to be great. You get to a, you know, good uh, position, um, you know, project team lead role, whatever the role is that you have. And you don't get there by being a screw up, right? You get there by being, by actually being good at what you do and being right. competent. Uh, but I think that one of the things that most people respond to, because we've all been there, we've all done something, we've all screwed something up. Uh, mm -hmm. I think most people like it when someone's honest and humble about it and just says, look, I'm, you know, yeah, I, this wasn't the right call. You know, I, I get it. We made a mistake. Mm -hmm. it, so when I make mistakes like that, I try to be very uh, humble and honest with my team and just say, yeah, I, I made a mistake here. I thought we should do X. That was the wrong way to go. Or I've, you know, been pushing you to do Y and you guys are telling me I needed to do X and you guys are absolutely right. And, yeah. you know, and, and, and owning that that's going to get you a lot more cachet with your team than, uh, than trying to ignore the fact that you were pushing them down one path when they were telling you to go to another path. Yeah. So being humble and uh, authentic and uh, honest with people. Yeah. I mean, at least, at least for me, that's, that's, that's what works, right? If you're, cause if, mm -hmm. if you're willing to try, try different ways of working with people and, try out new things you also have to be willing to risk failure and when you when you risk failure mm -hmm. it's way easier to risk failure if you're willing to come out and say yeah you know what mm -hmm. that was i screwed up i you know that that wasn't the right way to go you guys knew the right way to go i didn't people are going to be actually pretty responsive to that for the most part i think because you know who wouldn't want to work with someone who's willing to acknowledge when they were wrong and you're that you're yeah. you know it's so much right. easier and then, then being in a dictatorial style or like a, an autocratic <laughs> environment where, you know, the leader's always right. I mean, yeah. you know, I, for the most part, like, I, I guess and that comes back to my original um, thinking around, you know, well, what are the things that I don't like? And yeah. Not, you know, just trying to, you know, not, not do those things. And, you know, I mean, it's, it sounds easy and it can be easy if you have the right mindset, you know, it, and yeah. it's very hard though when you're the smartest guy in the room. You know, people think that they're the smartest person in the room. It's really hard to be wrong. Right. It sounds like it also is good role modeling for your team members. Do you find that by behaving this way, others are more willing to come forward when they make mistakes too? I think so. I mean, you know, it, it, it's funny. What ends up happening after a period of time, um, at least that I've found, is that it just becomes a natural part of, of the dialogue and the discourse. Right. Hey, I thought we should do Y and I was wrong. We need to do Z. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not even a, mm -hmm. it, it's not even a, a second thought. It's just, that's right. what it is. And mm -hmm. it's great because then you've taken that, you know, oh, the first few times it's hard for people to do that, but over time it becomes, it just becomes part of your team's working culture. And yeah. you realize that it's okay to make mistakes and we make mistakes. But usually they're small mistakes. 99% of the time they're small mistakes. You know, the big mistakes, the, re the reason we avoid the big mistakes is because we all talk to each other and we know that, you know, we make decisions together. And usually, you know, together we're, we're able to chart a pretty good path. And so we're not going to make the huge mistakes. Uh, you might make a huge mistake by yourself if you don't talk to people. But if you're, you're a lot, you know, you're de-risking those, those big mistakes by having the right team culture. So I found that over time, you know, um, if I model that behavior, usually most of my teams will, you know, start 
start exhibiting some of that and just realize, and it just becomes part of the normal dialogue. And it's, you know, I don't even think twice about it anymore. Well, you know, time has flown me hard because uh, we're actually hitting our end of our show here. But I want to say that uh, you really, even maybe inadvertently, wrapped it up so neatly here by describing this whole idea of this communication and collaboration and being willing to, to make mistakes and be humble um, is what makes the team have better results overall. Uh, and that's what we're all about here on Reinventing Nerds is helping people work together uh, to achieve. So thank you so much for sharing your secrets to success. No worries, Joni. Th thank you so much for having me on your podcast. This has been great. Yes, thank you. And thanks to all of our listeners and viewers. Uh, we're here at reinventingnerds.com and uh, we'll see you next time. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Reinventing Nerds and encourage you to apply what you learned to help you communicate better. For a free consultation with Joni to see how she can help you further, please visit ReinventingNerds.com. Until then, embrace your inner nerd and remain true to yourself while you develop your communication strategies.